What's really interesting to me and what I couldn't have predicted when I first wrote the book was just how true the main concepts are societally. This notion of heroic individualism, constantly working for the next thing, never feeling enough, never having enough, always needing more, more, more. At the time I wrote the book, that seemed like a very individual problem. And now I look around and I just see it everywhere societally. What's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast. Uh, things over here in Asheville are uh, are pretty good. It's starting to cool off a bit. I know hard for me to say that to you down in Houston, but it's nice to um, to, to get in the 70s with a breeze again. Fall is by far my favorite season here. The colors are immaculate. The weather is cool, and the mountains are calling. So the Stahlbergs like to get out there as much as we can. Well, that's fantastic. It's a million degrees here and miserable. But you know what? We're one day closer to my favorite Texas season called winter, where it's like perfect all the time. Um, But besides being perfect, you know what else is perfect, Brad? What's that, Steve? Well, the fact that we don't have ads on this podcast. Why don't you tell us about us? Wow, I like how you did that. Well, yeah. I mean, the the bottom line is this, right? So many of the most common ads for podcasts in our genre, whether they be for supplements, powders, mattresses, various measurement trackers, um, it's not that there's never a time and a place for these sorts of things, but that time and place is often pretty rare. And we think a lot of that stuff is overhyped, and um, we don't necessarily want to be a microphone for things that we don't use, and, and we don't actually think really bend the needle on sustainable excellence. So this podcast is ad-free. It's 100% member-supported. If you're enjoying us, the best way to support us is on Patreon. So for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month, you get an access to our monthly book clubs, where we have authors of best-selling books join us for live discussions quarterly mastermind groups, a community Slack channel for peer support. You get signed copies of all our new books, early podcast releases, and other bonus materials. So head over to www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation to learn more, or you can click the link in our show notes. And if you haven't, y'all really need to check out our two most recent books, Do Hard Things by my man Steve, the Practice of Groundedness by yours truly. Uh, if you like the show and you haven't read or listened to the books, I don't know what you're waiting for because uh, as good as we try to be on the podcast, we are so much better in writing. And those deep dives, man, it's just everything that we stand for. So if you haven't checked out our books, grab a copy. Those links are in the show notes too. Fantastic. Well, speaking of books, Brad... Today, we're going to talk about, I think it's a special day. It's an anniversary of sorts. It is the one-year anniversary of the practice of groundedness launching from, you know, launching into the world. Can I ask you a question, Steve? Yeah. How come you go to anniversary? I was thinking it's the birthday. Like, who did groundedness marry a year ago or get with? You know, I don't know. I I think it's like a you know it's a anniversary it's like the one year anniversary 
20th it's anniversary. The one year birthday. We'll leave it up to listeners. Of, is, of does the a book thing, have a birthday you know? or an anniversary? I think it's a Be- birthday. I don't know. Because I think when people like refer to major movies coming out, it's like, you know. Hmm. You're not yeah. wrong. So, Did you miss an anniversary with Hillary and she got mad and now anniversaries are on your mind? I, I've only had I've only had um two of them, so I haven't missed any yet because there's only been two. As you progress down that track, it's very important to put that in, in your calendar like the five days before so you don't miss the reminders. Brad, I'm sensing some sort of problems here. Maybe No, I never had a problem. I stay ahead of those problems. May, I, I maybe put it in you, the calendar. Maybe you like birthdays because anniversary brings back some tragic, horrible memory where Brad just got scolded. Uh, no, the truth is, I'm terrible about birthdays and anniversaries because uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, whether it's close friends or romantic partner, uh, I love these people. I love them every day, and every day is great. So, without the reminder in my calendar, I would forget. Um, but I get I get ahead of it. Okay, we got it. So, anniversary, birthday, let us know. But what I think is most important here is it's been a year. It's been a year. Your book's been out. You know, often, maybe to set this conversation up, often I think, you know, we spend years writing books and a handful of people read them, our editors, a select other re- readers, and then you put it out in the world and you think, you know, what's going to happen. You think, you know, you know, how this book is going to help people change people, impact society. But you never really know until it's out and you never really know until it's out for long enough where you get that feedback and 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 see how it resonates. So sitting a year, you know, past its birthday anniversary, what do you think of Brad? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I'm I'm proud of the book. Um, I'm proud of myself for writing it. I'm proud of you for being a partner along the way with all of it. I think it's helped a lot of people as individuals and most of the feedback that I've gotten has been very much on that level. So, Hey, I'm someone that was struggling with heroic individualism or I'm someone that was on the edge of burnout or I felt like nothing I could ever do would be enough. Or I was always so out ahead of myself that I couldn't enjoy where I was, or I was like so focused on consistency, um, and, uh, and, and, and as a result, like I just pushed too hard too often or the opposite. I was so focused on intensity that I went to the well a few times and, and that was all I could summon. And, um, all that is great. A year later, I think that what's really interesting to me and what I couldn't have predicted when I first wrote the book was just how true the main concepts are societally. So this notion of heroic individualism, which is the problem that the book addresses, I define it as constantly working for the next thing, uh, never feeling enough, never having enough, always needing more, 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 going a thousand miles an hour, where as you pursue more, you're not even present enough to evaluate kind of the costs. um, And you don't care as much about the process or the path. You just want the goal. And at the time I wrote the book, that seemed like a very individual problem. And now I think that um, I look around and I just see it everywhere societally. Particularly in the last the last few months, there have been some really good long articles written by people that I don't think have any notion of groundedness the book, um, who, who are themselves discussing uh, trends that, that 
look a lot like heroic individualism. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I'd agree with you. I've seen a lot of the kind of similar themes. So maybe something I'm more, I'd wondering about is when you see other people writing about themes of your book, but not actually the book, like what's that feel like? I actually love it. I mean, because it to me, well, it depends on the people, right? Like if they're people that I admire or people that I think are are smart and wise, um, it just gives me more confidence, right? That like, hey, I was actually onto something. This wasn't just in my head. Um, is there a, a, a moment where it's like, oh man, like I wish they would have sought, like sought, no, cited, I guess that's the, the, the pass for sight. So I wish they would have cited my book. Yeah, of course you have that moment, but I don't really dwell on that. For me, it's definitely more reassurance. So here's an example, right? Um, there was an essay in the New York Times by this economist named Herman Daly, um, who I had heard of a couple of times way back to undergraduate school when I was studying economics. And he talks about these two kinds of ethics in economics. He calls them the economic ethic and the heroic ethic. And he says, the heroic ethic says, hang the cost, full speed ahead, death or victory right now, forward into growth. If we create too many problems in the present, who cares? The future will learn how to deal with it. Full speed ahead, more, more, more. And the economic ethic, he says, considers the costs of our labors and whether or not they're sustainable and if the pace is sustainable and so on. And... Um, he writes that a huge problem societally is that our economics of the past couple decades have been of the heroic variety. Mm. So it's the same oil that fuels our heroic ethic that also fuels nation states with values that are antithetical to ours, such as Russia or Saudi Arabia. Um, from a climate standpoint, the same thing. It's this need for more, more, more. The future will take care of it that puts us in a situation where we might be in a real crisis in the future. Um, and he made this really compelling argument for switching from the heroic ethic to what he calls the economic ethic. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, this sounds a lot like the problems with heroic individualism. And he's talking about it as like our whole economy functions on this kind of this this treadmill of needing more. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it really is. You know, I love that too, is when you see similar concepts expanded outside of maybe the niche fields that you were considering them in. And it really gets to some of these ideas kind of, again, are transcending of just kind of our worlds that we live in and are more broad or are broader. Um, so, okay, so considering, and I, I don't mean this to be an interview, but I'm kind of curious. So, Having read pieces like this heroic versus economic, you know, input, how would you change groundedness? I think I would have a chapter in the back that is a more, it would be called like something along the lines of a more grounded society. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, I guess it'll be in the show notes. So if you're listening Wednesday, you'll get this before the newsletter comes out on Thursday. But it's a long piece that I'm writing for the newsletter um, that I probably would have even expanded upon more if it was a full chapter in a book. And I think I would have made an argument for, hey, this book has really been about how to use the principles of groundedness, how to identify the problem of heroic individualism as an individual. Um, 
with your team, with your organization, even with your community, that stuff is definitely in the book. But I didn't go super broad where I'm like, hey, let's zoom out and let's look at these big societal problems. And the two in particular that I wish I would have looked at would have been, again, what Herman Daly a year later calls like the heroic ethic and the trouble it's gotten into economically. And then I also would have looked at loneliness. And I talk a lot about loneliness as an individual and a lot about loneliness in small groups, but I don't talk about a lonely society. And um, I think that's a real problem now. Now, to be fair to myself, the draft of the book was in before COVID. So whatever refinements happened during COVID, those were refinements. And we didn't want to write a COVID book, right? Um, January 6th hadn't happened. We kind of knew that Trump was a very interesting president and, and, and to a lot of people pretty crazy, but like the extent of Trumpism wasn't a thing. And now I think that loneliness is not just like something for individuals to worry about. I think it's like a huge policy problem because if you've got a bunch of people that are lonely and let's define loneliness is like the opposite of what in the book I call deep community. So not a sense of belonging. So they don't feel connected to something and also not actual in-person physical connection. You get a lot of people like that. And suddenly these are the kinds of people that are prone to conspiracy theories, to mass movements, to authoritarian leaders, because they're scared and they're lonely. And um, again, I think it's really important, right? The, the philosopher Hannah Arendt talks about this um, exquisitely in the 1950s, that loneliness isn't just not being in connection with other people. It's not being in connection with yourself. And in my mind, I see such a direct tie between kind of the heroic economic ethic which just says more, 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 go, 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 produce, 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 consume, 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 screw the cost, take the supplements, be Superman or Superwoman, try to live forever, um, everything be damned. I see that. Yeah, it makes you lonely because you don't have time to build community with other people, but you, you kind of don't get to build trust with yourself if you're going a million miles an hour all the time. And I think that, um, that loneliness is really becoming, like to me, the root problem of a lot of things that then the symptoms get expressed as authoritarianism in government or tribalism on the internet, um, obviously depression, anxiety, and, and some of the more obvious ones too. So you said a couple things that are really interesting. First, maybe to go back, I want to comment on this because I, I feel the same way and I think this is maybe the genre we're in, but uh, Do Hard Things was very much an individual or team or organization. And at the very last, I think, you know, if you haven't read it, but I'm not going to give it all away. But the last couple of paragraphs, I kind of hint at this is a larger societal problem. So, like, think about that. But similar to you, I think, like, you could, I could have certainly expanded out and be like, look at all these fake tough dudes. And yeah, I mean, your, your book societally could have been like, how did we get Trump and Putin? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what it is. So it's interesting that like we both felt that way and and didn't quite, you know, go that that far. Um, and then the point on loneliness that I want I want to address here is when you say that and we think of societally, I think of two things that I've I've talked about before, which is one, our environment invites action. And our environment invites essentially being alone, separate. 
right? Our, it, it, everything pulls us in that direction. So I think that's where you get these, like, it, it probably is some sort of like policy or societal shift that has to occur. The other thing that, that comes to mind as well is that we have these basic needs or basic foundations, one of them being a sense of community, connection, belonging, all that stuff. And if society doesn't or pushes us to not kind of fill that in the normal way, then we're going to fill that gap somewhere. And we end up filling it with, you know, what I'll just say is like the candy. Yeah. Right. And I think that, I think that also like to your point and maybe you're putting it, um, you're being a little bit more generous, but I would say that a lot of the interest of some, many, most of the largest forces shaping society today. So, Think about the interest of the two big political parties and politicians. Think about the interests of social media companies. Um, think about the interest of even like rote consumerism, so consumer brands. Um, perhaps even some large religious organizations. Now, certainly not all. Uh, in groundedness, I actually highlight a lot of benefits of spirituality and religion, but but some re- religious organizations, yes. Their incentives are to make us feel lonely. Because if we feel lonely and we're not connected to what is deep within us and other people and like the life in front of us, then to your point, we try to fill that emptiness elsewhere. So we buy stuff, we flee to alternative worlds, a la social media. We look for a sense of belonging and like tribalism that's every bit as much about fear and hate of the other than connection genuinely. And again, like do politicians want us to feel like really secure and intimate and belonging and and close to ourselves and our communities. Some, but not all, because when they fundraise, if you like me get fundraising text messages, even from the people I like, they're so divisive. They're like, you're alone and scared and you need to donate. It's like, fuck you. Um, Social media companies certainly want us to feel real world only. So we look for that connection online. Consumer brands What do people do, myself included, when you're feeling down and lonely? You buy a watch, you buy a new pair of shoes, you buy a shirt, what have you. And um, again, I want to tread really lightly because it's like a spiritual person myself. This is certainly not all religious organizations, but there are a lot of grifters in religion. And if you have lonely congregants, then there's only one place that they find belonging, which is, you know, going to church and paying your dues. So I agree. I think... A couple things here is that it's not just loneliness. I think what what it is is, I mean, loneliness plays a big role, but I think what it is is we've gotten too good as a society of pushing the buttons that will get us to consume, buy, or, you know, vote or whatever it is. And unfortunately for humans, those buttons are often the negatives, so that feeling of loneliness, the feeling of being threatened or insecure, right? The feeling that, you know, these dangerous others are coming to get you. Like all that does is kind of activate a primitive survival instinct. And our survival instinct is, well, to survive, which often means we grasp on to the thing that is promising us to take care of us, the group that is promising to make the world up or make the world add up. There's actually some fascinating research in gangs that show, well, why do they create 
why do people join gangs and why do they create such a you know kind of strong sense of belonging and it's because they make the world add up and they provide you a space where you know who is with you and that you are supported and you know who is against you so it makes the world very simple and straightforward while providing you that sense of security so i i think it's almost like we've reached a period where we've gotten so good at pushing these buttons and when i say we i mean societally you know whoever's trying to sell stuff whatever have you that now it's it's like we're kind of doomed to a degree (laughs) all right i'm going to turn the tables and ask you a question because i think it's really important and maybe this is just semantics but maybe not so Again, I'm going to cite Hannah Arendt, whose work I wish I would have gotten into before I wrote Groundedness. And of course, I knew who Arendt was. In, in undergraduate school, I read some of her stuff very much related to the Nuremberg trials and the Holocaust, but I hadn't like dove deep into her work. And, and over the last couple of months, I have. And her definition of loneliness, she uses the words uprootedness and superfluousness. So it's like a feeling of just being unmoored, like you have no foundation. Of course, my brain's like, oh, the opposite of groundedness, you have no ground. So of course, like her work resonates with me because I've been thinking along these lines um, myself. And she talks about how you know that you're in trouble and you have peak loneliness when you lose the ability to think your own thoughts. So when you're so bombarded by distraction and by other people's thoughts, when you can't even think your own thoughts. And she says that's peak loneliness because you are so overwhelmed that you can't even take refuge. You can't even be grounded in yourself. And Arendt argued that that is like the beck and call for totalitarianism because someone can come in and be like, oh, you're so unmoored. Let me give you solidity. Let me give you a foundation. Am I you know, we're not, we're not political scientists. We don't write about politics. So we view this stuff more like as objective observers. So my, my armchair analysis is like, when you hear someone like a Steve Bannon say, we're just going to flood the zone with shit. To me, that's like playbook Hannah Arendt. Like if there's so much noise and so much distraction that you can't even think your own thoughts, then you kind of feel like this sense of like lonely angst, lostness in someone can come right in and say, hey, follow me. I've got the answer. And if you look back at politics, not just in America, but with Brexit, in Hungary, in Poland, in a lot of places, that's what's happening, I think. Now, it's easy to like horoscope this and kind of, you know, Dan Kahneman, the behavioral scientist, talks about what you see is all there is. So if this stuff's on your mind, you can find it anywhere. Um, but I think it, it, I just find it so fascinating, both Arendt linking authoritarian, well, in her, in, in her times, totalitarianism, I'm speaking broadly. So I think demagogues, grifters, authoritarians to loneliness In her defining loneliness at the deepest point is the inability to think your own thoughts. I mean, I look around today and it's just distraction after distraction, like Republican, Democrat, political, not the zone is flooded with shit. I mean, you pick up Instagram and three hours later, you've just been wading through the zone that is flooded with shit. So if there's no time to think your own thoughts, then yeah, you're going to be like grasping for anything. And we talked the politicals, but maybe this is why bro science is like having like a huge second wave of people selling supplements and neurochemical optimization and this, that, the other. 
because people are just grasping for anything, man. So there's a couple of uh, theories in psychology, and I'm going to forget a bunch of them that talk about this as well. Uh, one I remember is the group-based control model, which essentially says whenever we feel uh, like like the world, like we have no sense of control in the world, we tend to restore order by, well, we feel like those negative emotions, and then we restore order by like further committing to a group. So this is how like those extremist groups are in our modern world. Maybe some of the, the political parties arise because like we feel like, oh, we have no control. Like this place is offering it. And then there's another, gosh, what was it? Um, there's a number, a bunch of them, but I remember this paper and I wish I rem- knew the name of it, but they called this whole experience uh, disanxious uncertilibrium. Which is essentially, you know, combining anxiety, discomfort, uncertainty, like all these words that grasp at this feeling of like, oh, man, everything feels chaotic. And when things feel chaotic, we have to grasp for meaning somewhere and some like control somewhere. So that's what we do. And I think that gets at the same idea of Arendt's, um, you know, claim there, which is when when the world feels so chaotic that other people's thoughts are essentially our own and we can't think first think anymore, then of course we grasp it creates the ripe environment to, uh, to kind of for authoritarianism to rise or for someone else to fill that gap. As I said, that gap's going to be filled somewhere. So sometimes that's by external people promising the world. Yeah. So then of course the question is what to do about it. And, and this is where I struggle and maybe why I didn't write the, the chapter because I'm not a policy expert, so I don't know what kind of policies are going to bring about acceptance, presence, patience, vulnerability, um, I guess deep community, there are, there are policy options. So my, my immediate inclination is like, you got to start with yourself. Uh, I recall the quote from my favorite book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Robert Persig, the author, says, the place to improve the world is first in your own heart and head and hands, and then you work outwards from there. Uh, He says, other people can talk about how to expand the destiny of mankind. I just want to talk about how to fix a motorcycle. I think that what I have to say there has more lasting value. And I interpret that as him being like, I don't have the answers to everything. Like, I'm just going to do good work. And if I do good work, it'll spread out from there. So, yeah, I do still think that groundedness has got to start as an inside game in capacity, skills, qualities to develop within yourself to make habitual. And then it spreads to organizations, to families, to local communities. So that's looking at it from the individual side. I think top-down societal change um, I mean, this is like magic wand hypothetical, you know, stuff. So I'm going to caveat it with that. But ultimately, I think like probably some sort of universal basic income or negative income tax or something that allows people to get off the go, go, go heroic ethos and have at least enough of a cushion so that they feel like they don't have to work two or three jobs, um, so that they don't feel like they're constantly under threat, and ideally allows them to have more freedom to do what they actually want to do. 
And that would obviously have the biggest impact for people that live in poverty or near poverty. And now you might say, well, what about for everyone else? Our, our general audience isn't in poverty or near poverty, but people still struggle. And there it gets a lot tougher, right? Because like you can't tell people to go off of social media. I mean, we don't. Um, and, and I don't know like what, what the right kind of big societal policies are. Cause I think this stuff's so complex and so multifaceted that like, you know, you only can use blunt force tools, which is why UBI comes to mind is like one, but that only addresses a subset of the problem and a subset of the population. I'm still a huge fan of UBI. We could do another episode on that. Um, simply, we've talked about this. I actually distinctly remember, Steve, you and I were on a hike back when I lived in Oakland in Redwood Regional Park. You remember this or you got dementia? <laughs> I remember it. And, and we had like this aha moment, which wasn't so aha, but I think for a lot of people, and I guess us at the time it was, which is like, if you go back to all the science on like motivation and why people do things, it's not for money. People do things, autonomy, mastery, and belonging. And especially in today's world where like status is just important because everyone exists on the internet or people perceive status to be important and status. So UBI basically covers the economic needs. So you don't have to go do like a job that you hate just to pay your rent and and meet your basic needs. And the whole argument that people are just going to stay home um, it's a very racist trope from the past, you know, like the, the stereotypical welfare queen. It's, it's utter bullshit. Like it wasn't true then, obviously. It's not true now because A, the data shows otherwise. What tends to happen when people have a strong cushion is it gives them the freedom, again, not to have to work three jobs to be able to take shots at what they want. And B, people are genuinely creative. What sucks the creativity out of someone is being forced to do something you hate to pay rent. Um, so yeah. And the other thing I'd say that is, is I think this is if you look at the highly successful people who have millions or billions of dollars is very few of them go live on a beach and never work again. Right. They're all workaholics. They're all workaholics. They all still have some sort of project or some sort of thing they're going after. Right. That's because motivation isn't you know derived solely from from money i think that the other part of that is where i find interesting is that you know we talk about motivation but there is also that status component and and as i've said here before you gotta you gotta give people a way to get status somewhere and and the wonderful thing about status is it's not across the world it can come in small groups as you can be the best i don't know softball player on your company softball team whatever it is right but we've got to give people avenues for that and i don't know what the policy solution there is but creating more avenues on a local standpoint to reach status would be vital to me and the other thing that i'd say that has harmed societally is it used to be able it used to be easier to achieve quote unquote status because we lived in local communities right you were the local barber and that meant something or the first grade teacher that everyone had that that meant something they're the dentist or whatever have you but as we've kind of moved from a local society to a global one because of the internet and the connectiveness and all that good stuff it's created this idea that we no one almost has status because you have to, 
there's always a comparison point where there's people who are doing, you know, better, more, whatever have you. And that becomes your comparison point, even if they're hundreds or thousands of miles away. So I think reframing that status symbol or that that status to local things, it's almost like, here's what I think of it, Brad, is like, you know, going back, I'm going to look at, you know, junior high Steve was not actually, sixth grade Steve was not actually the fastest kid in his grade level. I was, I was second. Right. But like that meant something to me where I'm like, Oh, look at this. I'm pretty good at this, even though someone's a little bit better than me. So I'm going to, you know, eventually run and, you know, train at some point and get better and, and compete. Now imagine instead of just me competing against this other kid named Zach in sixth grade or seventh grade. Now imagine if my, my status was, was derived from not just that junior high of a couple hundred people, but literally millions or billions of people. And I do think that this goes back to the the loneliness factor, believe it or not, and um, in heroic individualism, clearly, and in, in like a lack of groundedness, because part of the reason I think that people go search for status on the internet is because they're lonely. Like, I don't feel the need personally to compare myself to other people in sport because I train at a gym in a community with the same people and I see them every day. And I've got the couple people that are in the same neighborhood of strength and conditioning as me and we compete as friends. We joke, we go, we get after each other, but I don't need to go post my workouts and look what other people are doing. Cause I got those people right there in my neighborhood. Me as an author, I wish I had a group of 10 other authors that write similar books that all live in Asheville that I could talk to. I don't. So what do I do? I go to the internet. I say, well, how's Ryan Holiday's book selling? How's Dave Epstein's book selling? How's Adam Grant's book selling? And that's not nearly as healthy as having it locally. So I think that's 100% true. And again, I think the, the antidote to that is like a deep kind of belonging connection community because... What do you do when you feel lonely is you go look for love. And if you're not looking for it in the right places, well, then you look for it in the wrong places and you try to get that status, that belonging, that sense of of meaning from elsewhere. And in many ways, like you could argue that groundedness is really just about like, how do you find excellence in a way that is the opposite of immense loneliness, where you also know yourself and know your community and in that is more sustainable excellence because it's not heroic. You don't end up burning out in the same thing societally, right? Yes, absolutely. And you know how this, this search for status is true. Have you ever thought about like every once in a while, you'll see this. If you pay attention to sport where some like 60 year old dude gets busted for, you know, doping (laughs) and he's like a master's athlete competing in this, like, this competition that no one really cares about except for like his fellow master athletes. And he uses EPO or whatever you want to, whatever it is, the drug of the day and gets busted And what else or the, the runner who, you know, is an okay runner. And again, is like 50, 60, 70, whatever it is, but gets caught cheating and course cutting in order to, you know, win whatever, like, why do you do that? 
it doesn't really matter. Does anyone really care about, you know, who was the fastest six-year-old in the world? No, no one really cares. But what it is, is it's a measure of status. You know, that wouldn't happen if you didn't have, you know, the internet or, you know, more broadly, a community that, like, Fowdy said. I think it's that. And I think that it is a feeling of uprootedness and being unmoored as well. So Arendt's loneliness equally. And why? I mean, I, 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 the easiest way to explain this is to tell a story from back when I, again, was in Oakland. I used to train at the local YMCA on Broadway Street. Phenomenal gym institution, been in downtown Oakland forever. And there was a guy there that was talking to me very openly and vulnerably about considering using steroids. And he's like, listen, man, like I'm ethical. I'm never going to compete if I'm using steroids because like there are rules that you can't and that's not me and I'm not going to do that. But I just like want to see how strong I can get. And I remember I'm going to call him, uh, I'm going to call him Tim, not his name. I remember I'm like, Tim, like what's the end game here? So you use steroids for three years and you get stronger. And then what's next? You need more steroids. Like eventually you're going to get older and you're going to stop getting strong and eventually you're going to get weaker. So you better get comfortable knowing yourself beyond how much you can squat in the size of your quadricep or chest, because otherwise like that bill is going to come due and you're going to have to pay it. And once you open that faucet, there's no closing it. And, um, I don't know what happened. I mean, we moved out. I saw him at the gym. He wasn't like a close friend uh, or anything like that. So we haven't stayed in touch. Uh, but I hope he took it to heart because this guy, I mean, I believe him. He like he wasn't going to try to cheat and compete. It was like, still though, he needed more. He needed that heroic individualism, that heroic effort, even though he wasn't competing. And he could have had the most friends in the world. But to me, that still screams loneliness because like you don't really know yourself if you feel like you need to, to, to do something that could potentially harm you or that like you're constantly scared of this thing. Um, I don't love to think about aging and having my capacities diminish. Uh, the part of me that Zen is okay with it. The part of me that's not Zen, which is probably the bigger part of me that just tries to be strategic about it. To be honest, I'm like, all right, well, as I get older, I need to over index on like my writing, my coaching, my mentoring because those are things that require wisdom. I'm going to you know, continue, hopefully, to accrue wisdom and be good at for a very long time and start shifting how I view myself away from athlete and more towards wisdom and even away from like sharp thinker. You know, If we do this podcast in 30 years, I don't think either of us are going to be as sharp as we are right now, but we'll probably be a lot wiser. Um, this is just kind of a tangent, but like, it's not to say that it's just all Zen and we can accept decline. But I think that if you kind of accept decline, or at least you prevent yourself from chasing infinite progress in ways that are potentially harmful, I think that's ultimately healthy. And I think that ultimately requires really knowing yourself and your values and what makes you you. So it's not defined by these artificial things that you have to go out and chase. Does that make any sense? Couldn't have said it better. I think that's spot on. I think the athlete example really resonates is like, if you're so intertwined with your the amount of weight you lift or how fast you run the marathon then as that declines it's almost like this attack on your sense of self 
so that the answer is not to be like or the answer is just like you said there is like shift to things that that you know aren't kind of defined on this uh, impossible to progress kind of scale so in your athletics like sure maybe highly identify as a runner or lifter to a degree you know when you're young and you're chasing that and what have you and has meaning but as you age or that decreases importance you have to shift that activity to uh something else that's more meaningful such as or that's more sustainable such as like i lift weights or run because it's healthy for me and i'm gonna be uh, allow me to live longer and a better life for my kids or grandkids or whatever it is that you know keeps you going love it all right so i think to to close um we talked a lot about like potential issues. I said that I don't want to take such a big swing beyond the the little swing that's pretty big that we took about universal basic income. So like what would a more grounded society look like? Again, I don't know how to get there, but I think one that accepted the reality of environmental and other constraints and thoughtfully evaluated trade-offs instead of just growing, growing, growing. So it's not like anti-growth, but it's sustainable growth and not just lip service actually doing it. One that tried to facilitate presence in productive activity. So you could do this by encouraging participation in craft, sport, in the arts, and, and at least making that financially feasible for people. Again, we're going in the opposite direction, right? Like I think about an area that you know well, Steve, which is like the industrial complex of youth sports, where in some school districts, you have to pay for extracurricular sports. So talk about, you know, the kind of productive activity we write about in Groundedness where like you're like super connected to your thing and you're doing it for craft and it's an end in itself. Um, a great place for kids to get that is an extracurricular activity such as sports. And if you have to pay for that, that's going to tell a subset of the population that they can't do it. That's nonsense. Uh, ideally, we'd have a society that's more patient and that played the long game. And when we talked about efficient and optimal, we defined it not on a quarterly cycle, but maybe every four years, or we looked ahead even a decade. But again, where are the incentives? Companies report, publicly traded companies report quarterly. Politicians are elected between every two and four years, depending on the office. Not really one that plays the long game. Um, I think that we'd have leaders that address societal vulnerabilities instead of kicking the can down the road and putting band-aids on things. And then obviously, I think that we'd have one that um, really saw physical loneliness, so not being in connection with other people as the socio-political public health issue it is, and not just a nuisance. And I think here there's real progress. So Vivek Murthy, who's the current Surgeon General, um, he wrote a book all about loneliness, and he is, is at least verbally communicated that he he thinks this is a real public health issue. What to do about it? Vivek is 10 times smarter than me on this topic. I don't know what he's trying to do about it. I don't know if he has the solution because it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I think you summed it up there that it's a really hard thing to figure out and process. So I, I, I think awareness at this point is the, the goal. And then hopefully shifting ideas or mindsets on like, okay, this is an actual problem. How are we going to maybe shape society in the future to fix it? <sighs> That's for sure. All right. Well, 
good place to start. If you haven't yet and you enjoyed the conversation, uh, pick up a copy of The Practice of Groundedness on its one-year anniversary. You can buy it wherever books are sold. If you enjoy listening to books, it's available on Audible, Libro, and all the other apps. If you've already read Groundedness, but you haven't yet read Do Hard Things by Steve, uh, I don't know what you're waiting for. Do Hard Things is fantastic. So you can pick that up also wherever books are sold or wherever you listen to books. And um, we'll be sure to include the link to the more grounded society piece that we mentioned in the show notes. For those of you that are subscribed to our newsletter, it'll also be in the newsletter tomorrow. For those of you that want to learn more about our newsletter, head over to our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. And uh, then the last thing I'll say, I guess, is the author of the book is if you like it, if you like the show, if you like the book, is the friend of the author or the partner of the author of Steve's book, if you like his book, um, the best thing that you can do is just to spread the word, to share it, to get copies for colleagues, friends, family, Um yeah, we want to sell books so that we can pay our own rent and keep doing this. But hopefully, as y'all can tell from this conversation and so many of our others, um, we genuinely get excited by, motivated by, curious about these ideas, applying them in broad contacts, wrestling with them. And ultimately, we want to have a world where it's easier to talk about these things because more people are aware of them. So uh, share the work, share the books, share the podcast. And um, that's it for me. Steve, any closing words for the listeners? Just check out our stuff and we appreciate you guys. So until next time, take care of everybody.